Hey, it's Dave from Cooking Something Good. I'm in a good mood today because why? Two reasons. One is the holiday season. Happy holidays. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Happy, happy everything. And also, yesterday I had my colonoscopy and I wrote a little song, which I'm going to share with you right now while I do my little dance here. Ready? Three, two, one. My colonoscopy. Bum, 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 they took a look at me. Yeah, 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 put a tube up my butt. Bump, 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 and looked into my gut. And this is what they found. Everything safe and sound. My colonoscopy. The prep, it sucked. That's my colonoscopy song. It's happy holiday time. Great show. We're going to look back all throughout this year 2022 all our different shows we'll put a bunch of different interviews together a bunch of different recipes together thank you we have passed the 100 show mark 100 plus shows and we can't wait till 2023 we're gonna have some great things including episodes with people just like you people from our social media friendship clubs and we're going to talk about restaurants and places you've gone and recipes that you have. Bum, 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 oh, my colonoscopy. They took a look at me. My name is David D. It's time to start the show. Happy holidays, everyone. Bum, 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 bum. Doos. Bum, 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 I mean, yeah. for meat heavy, I mean, this country's really meat heavy, you know, and if you think about it, you really have to use in order to, to gain flavor and reduce acidity in a dish that consists of meat, you need to use vegetables to draw all that up. So what do you think you're doing when you eat vegetables? You're drying the acidity out of your body. Yeah. You know, so a good, that's why they call it a good balanced meal. And one big reason why in Italy, a lot of people live so long is because they eat a lot of fish and they use a lot of vegetables and a lot of uh, things that permeate with, you know, like bay leaf, things like that. Now, all so, the things your grandmother told you. There's no a, fast food out there, Dave. Yeah. And I loved it. All the things your grandmother told you as a kid are now coming back into fashion. Yes. After all these fad, blah, blah, blah. And that's nice to see. That's it. Done. You do a little anchovy paste sometimes with the garlic. You let it melt in a pan yeah. and you can throw some capers in there, uh, some chili flakes. You could do like an aglio olio, which is all garlic and oil based or a little trace of tomato in there. And, uh, you know, the olive oil really is what brings uh, all the ingredients together. Yeah. Um, it kind of helps the pasta. It helps the sauce stick to the pasta as well. So if using a base sauce with not a whole lot of olive oil in it, you're going to see that pot, that that sauce kind of slipping off the pasta and you're leaving your pasta white. Whereas if you use some extra virgin olive oil and it when you're actually, so, you know, when you're at home, you, you make it a pot of sauce, right? Yeah. You take another pot and you want to toss the pasta a little bit in with the sauce just to get it on a plate, right? Yeah. So now if you, if you actually hit, hit, turn the stove on, get some olive oil in there with those ingredients, you're going to notice that the, sauce that stick into the pasta and you get all that extra flavor uh, on and that's where you want to use extra virgin olive oil i see a lot of people cooking frying with extra virgin olive oil yeah if you're fancy you got that kind of money yeah fine it, but like you it really don't need <laughs> the, 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 what does it do does it help no not really it's it, it turns it, into grease 
Now, you obviously must take in fluids when you're riding. Do you take in food too, or is it just um, when, you're racing, when you're actually racing? So when I'm actually racing, um, even typically, unless it's a really hot day, don't even carry water. Um, it's all about hydrating the previous kind of 24 to 30 hours before so you your race for an hour with no and you have no fluid yeah yeah no because what we do is we really hydrate for the the 24 to 30 hours before that race yeah. um so our body you know is hydrated and then we can basically run it to depletion and throughout the race um because we're i mean you're running at absolutely max heart rate for me, you know, around 200 beats per minute for an hour, it's really hard to take down water, let alone food. So that's why the the prep leading up to a race is extremely important. Now on a training ride, yeah, I, I carry lots of water, lots of calories, lots of carbohydrates. Um, but yeah, in a race, pretty much Holy nothing. Cow. I could never win a race because I'd fall asleep because I'd be up all night peeing. I mean, the only I mean you you've the got you got to time it right. But <laughs> the, the only you get, it's a problem. Now, what kind of racing did you do? There's all different people think of the Tour de France and my shirt. I can see myself dun 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 dun. I'm gonna win this thing. And I can hear the music in my head, you know, if it was a documentary, dun 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 David do so bum bum bum. And then I'd reach in my pack and I'd don't a sweat be pouring off and I drink my water and bum bum bum. Is that the kind of is that a good example? <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, I mean, if you're watching a, a cycling documentary from the 80s, yeah, maybe. But uh, like, I think no. Like so me, what so I did me. is, yeah. So what I did is uh, what's called cyclocross. Yeah. Um, so I I race some road, I race some mountain bikes. Um, but I really specialize in what's called cyclocross. It's really it originated in Europe. It's kind of a mix between mountain biking and road biking. Uh, you're on what looks like a road bike but it, the geometry is a little bit different has a little bit more aggressive tires um what and by system, what do you mean by aggressive tires got a, a little bit more knobs on it it's not a smooth slick tire it's more like a mountain bike tire but kind of the size of a road bike tire if that makes a little more sense no um the season is from september through february yeah. So we are dealing for, with, you know, extreme heat and dry temperatures, um, you know, in the early fall, all the way to we're racing in snow and ice. How uh, cold is it getting? Some, I mean, is it sub-zero temperatures? I mean, I've raced in single digits before. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think most chefs talk about their biggest influence being from where they came from, where they grew up. And I grew up on a small family farm in uh, Eastern Iowa. Um, we raised dairy and we had pork and then our neighbors had chickens and we raised our own vegetables. Um, and so that's kind of where I come from mostly and sort of, you know, being heavily influenced by my mom, of course. Uh, like, like most chefs, I think it's like what you ate growing up is the most comfort. And, and so a lot of times I base uh, things off of that and um, kind of went from there. I went to culinary school up in Vermont, uh, at New England Culinary Institute that really focuses heavily on um, buying local and working with farmers and, and sort of the importance uh, of rediscovering these ingredients that um, are not mass produced and are not being able to ship. And just seeing like simple food like that 
how much of a difference it makes when uh, when it's fresh and when you know you're supporting your neighbors who are able to grow these things that maybe they can't put into a box and ship across the country. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and then um, yeah, I ended up in Boston after culinary school and have been able to work for companies and work with people who have um, really oh. sort of fostered that. Thank you. Have uh, fostered that uh, and or who that those things are also important too. Um, so uh, it's been we've been uh, sort of blessed to be able to be in an environment uh, that allows us to do that. So I know I, I see especially with uh, sort of um, intro level cooks uh, in professional kitchens, um, especially sort of when you're getting into that point in your career when you're able to start designing dishes, is that um, I feel like the common thought is that more is better. Uh, the more complicated, maybe the more ingredients, maybe the more unusual the combination, it, it's more like sort of avant-garde and, and sort of like high-end, but that's not always the case. And many times it takes a lot more courage to sort of go with less and, and work with technique to let those ingredients shine on their own. Because uh, one of my favorite things in the world is mofongo. Can you tell our Incredible. listeners who don't who don't know what it is what it is? Well, mofongos is uh, we mix it up with mashed plantain, we mix it up with some uh, call it chicharrón, fried probelli, yeah, some garlic, some a little bit of adobo. So we mix it up everything together, and we make a really nice form, and we serve it up for any size we like: fried chicken, uh, garlic oh. shrimp, tomato sauce shrimp, whatever you decide. Yeah, and I, I, it's really good. It's re really good. It's one of my favorite working Besides, people. You know, you know, working class people are already at work at eight o'clock. Yeah, they've yeah, already. We, we have a warehouse real, real next to us, so we got it. You know, we know they start working earlier. Sometimes they get up because that's twenty-four hours to yeah. the warehouse over there. So sometimes they get up, get out of work up, let's say five thirty, six o'clock, six in the morning. So we open, so they just got some some breakfast to take home before go to sleep. Yeah, it's perfect. So they go it's crazy. It's like it's like some of the some of the products that we're not allowed to bring into the U.S. because they've got a certain color in them or or something again that the FDA don't like. Um, but you know, here they put high fructose corn syrup and everything. They put Hershey's put waxing agent in their chocolate. Yeah. Both those things are classed as unfit for human consumption in Europe. But here they put them in everything. Corn syrup kills more people than cigarettes. Yeah, I can't back that up, but it kills a lot of people. That stuff it is does build a killing. lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I, I am, tr and I try to stay away from it. And it's not easy. You got to read the labels. I mean, there's corn syrup and everything, unless you really read the labels. And I'm getting different. Apparently, apparently, I found out there's different levels of corn syrup. Because some of the things I sell do have corn syrup in, but they don't have the high fructose corn syrup, which is the bad one. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Great. Yeah. So when you're looking at your dog, they should have a nice tapered look to them. So the front half where the rib cage is should be a little bit larger. And then as it comes back to their back end, it should taper underneath. So you get a nice little, almost a curve shape. And then from the top, you should see a wider front that tapers in towards the back end. So if your dog is all one size, they're a little bit too thick. And if your dog goes in, comes out for the rib cage and goes back in, they may be too thin. So you should be able to feel ribs or see the last two. If your dog is very athletic, you might see the last two ribs and that's okay. That's a good thing. Um, if your dog is a pet, 
you should be able to at least feel the ribs if not see the last two. Yeah, and it's true. I see dogs that you can see the ribs and they get narrow in the back. Those dogs usually lickety split. Can, oh yeah. Can run like the wind. So you can work on things um, like handler focus and ignoring the environment. You can work on loose leash walking. You can work on having dogs disengage from something that's very exciting. And we have all of these games. These are a great way. It's all positive reinforcement type games. Um, but one example is as you're walking along and you have your dog next to you, there's the reward zone, which is basically that area when your dog is right next to your pants scene. Yeah. So if you want to teach a really nice heel, you can teach it without having to jerk on the leash or tell them heel a million times by just starting to reward only when they're in that position. So when they're right next to your leg, not when they're in front, not when they're in back, but when they're right in that little area around that pants seam, that's when you give the treats. And dogs are opportunistic. So they will learn that this is where I get all the good stuff and I don't get anything there and I don't get anything there. So they're going to start to naturally want to be in that spot. And if you're working on loose leash walking, as they're next to you and they look up at you, you can toss little treats to them and you can have them catch it. And then again, you're teaching them it's really rewarding to stand next to me and catch my kibble and catch my breakfast and be more focused on my person than what's going on around. So it not only helps you get your heel, get a dog that walks without having to pull on them or get dragged or anything like that, saving your shoulder from the PT. Um, and it also helps them ignore what's out in the environment because you are way more exciting than the squirrel and the bird and the other dog and the other person. And I, I went to Philadelphia, I'm gonna say like, maybe six or seven years ago. And there's a guy who wrote a book called Mastering the Art of Pasta. His name is Mark Betry. Yeah. So I wrote him this long email and I was like, listen, I, 4th of July weekend, I close the restaurant. I would like to come down there and stage in your kitchen. So I go down there and uh, stay at a hotel, catch an Uber to his restaurant. This guy is like world renowned. If you look up Mark Betry, he owns restaurants. He's in Vegas, but his, his, his famous restaurant in Philadelphia. Yeah. So I go stage for him. He has a posture room. I'm blown away because I'm just like, dude, this is this is it. I go in there, I have like a nine course meal. Unbelievable. I go upstairs, I like make some fresh pasta. And I was making pasta at my restaurant, but I just wasn't at that level yet. I was, I was still a newbie because a lot of times when you work for a chef, you kind of inherit what they do. But sometimes when you go into uncharted territory, you have to kind of figure it out. So I was yeah. reading a lot of books, whatever. So long story short, I go to Philadelphia, I work in his kitchen for free. I basically, you know, I'm in this hotel, get up in the morning, go, you know, on my vacation. Um, and one of the days, you know, I'm working there and I'm like, oh, well, you do anything else? And he says, yeah, could you mop the floor? Now, here I am, you know, grown man, yep. own my own restaurant, have 18 employees, head chef. And this guy asked me to mop the floor. So I stopped for a second and I said, yeah, no problem. Where's the mop in the bucket at? And I mopped the hell out of that floor, Dave. I, I, I mopped that floor, Dave, like it was like it was the love of my life. Because I said, you know what? There's, there's strength and humility, and people don't realize that. And he was, test was, like, he was testing you, too, don't you think? Of course. Of yeah. course. Of course. But at the time, people are emotional. People react certain ways. I could have been like, are you kidding me? I'm working for free. I own my own restaurant. I'm a big side of my neighborhood. But I said, you know what? This guy was gracious enough to invite me to his kitchen. Mm -hmm give me information that I didn't have. And this guy's a legend. I look up to him. So I grabbed the mop and I mopped it very, very, very good. And I explained that to my employees and the young chefs that are coming up, their strength and humility. Before someone said, 
yes, chef to me. I had to say yes, chef to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Hey, what's the secret? A lot of people, you know, a lot of people love the barbecue, but smoking meat and getting yeah. it to be, you know, burnt, burnt ends, but then moist yeah. on the inside. What's the secret to good barbecue? Uh, I would say the secret to good barbecue is something my dad says not only in cooking food, um, but he also says it in life. Uh, and it's just kind of something that reminds me to be patient. And so, you know, when, whenever something was in the oven and it, and it wasn't done and I would open the oven, I would hear my dad yell from across the room, don't touch it. <laughs> you do a good and Peter. So that's that's kind of that's <laughs> what I would tell people with barbecue is when you put it on, don't touch it. Um, you know, let it do its work. The only way the smoke is going to penetrate the meat and like start the process is, is time. And that's the only thing I also tell people, you know, when you're starting out in barbecue, don't go to the store and buy a 20 pound brisket as your first thing, Yeah. because you're going to ruin it for yourself right off the bat. You're going to sit there for 23 hours straight processing the things, you know, getting it on the smoker, making your spouse or your partner angry because you're out on the deck all night doing it. And then you can sit down to eat it and no one can eat it or go to, a, you know, uh, a, a local shop that, you know, curates sausages or something like that. Sausages only take an hour, an hour 15 on the smoker and you can get really good flavor. You can get really good color. So just start with something simple like that and put that on the smoker and then build your way up to getting up to pulled pork and brisket and stuff like that. But for us, we put our meat on the smoker at six o'clock at night and we don't touch it. We don't open the door. Uh, for our brisket or pulled pork until at least 7, 7.30 in the morning. Yeah, so the brewing thing, like to explain it simply, um, you know, we're taking grains from the field and they're getting malted and that's kind of just converting them a little bit into an ingredient that we can mix with hot water uh, and kind of make like a mash, like an oatmeal where you have this nice viscous um, mix and what's happening is the water is activating enzymes in, in the barley malt uh, that are converting starch to sugar, the sugar being called maltose after malt. Yeah. Uh, and then we're extracting that liquid into a boil kettle. Um, that liquid is called wort. Uh, and then we're kind of steeping hops for a few different reasons. We're, we're trying to extract some bitterness uh, in the form of acids, and that's going to give balance to kind of the sweet brew that you have uh, and then we're getting flavors from the hops which range from like earthy to piney to citrusy to tropical and stone fruit uh, and then you're also kind of getting aromatics from the hops uh, as well um, kind of ranging in those same uh, descriptors that I just said um, so after the boil, we're, we're going to cool that temperature down and make it really friendly environment for yeast to kind of thrive in. And the yeast just love to eat up all that, uh, fermentable sugar, that maltose mm -hmm. and the byproduct of, of the consumption of the maltose is, uh, alcohol, which gives you your buzz. And also alcohol adds like a very unique, nice flavor to, to the product as well. Um, and it gives you a little bit of carbon dioxide and CO2. So it kind of gets it, the, the yeast kind of pushes it along its way to, to become a, a final packaged beer. 